today's episode of Vice Versa, we're talking about autonomous driving, company consolidation, EVs taking over gas cars by 2027, the first commercial scale offshore wind farm in the US, Tesla suspending Bitcoin payments, and more. And as usual, I'm joined by Ricky Roy, the man who convinced me to buy way too much Dogecoin. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> well, depending on what date that trigger you pulled, that might have been a good idea or not. But who can keep track with Elon and his tweeting about these oh, cryptocurrencies, man. man? It's been a wild week. Um, I'm doing well. It has been, I've had three trips back to back to back after 16 months of <laughs> being cooped up at home. So that's been kind of a crazy adventure, but it's been good. Um, I had a special little trip to see a company in Detroit. Uh, so I'll have a special episode on that next week on my channel. But this week, our video is not out yet, but it's going to be on mechanical energy storage options, something that you have covered a couple times, I think, in the past. I, I so. love that topic. It's a it's fun Really topic. fun. Yeah. What about you? How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I just put a video out this week exploring the difference between uh, solar panels and solar tiles and kind of going through all the different tile options because there's a lot more than just Tesla's solar tile roof. There's other options out there and kind of breaking down like the pros and cons of the two and the, the cost differences that you typically will see. Uh, it was a lot of information. It was a lot of numbers I was throwing at people. So hopefully it was useful to people. Yeah, it was a good follow-up. I think it got into some of the details after your first video talking about the installation side and kind of the logistics of it. So very cool. Yeah. So yes, today is episode 26, I believe. Just yes, it is. chugging right along. Yeah. And I think it's time for us to start with our first story of the night, which is what we had on the, the, th the title and the thumbnail for the video, the autonomous vehicle world is shrinking and it's overdue. So it's not that the end of self-driving car companies or startups, it's more that they're consolidating. So if you rewind time to like 2016, if you just mentioned the words self-driving startup, investors would have like millions ready to throw at you, e even without like a business plan or anything else. And that's kind of where we were at that point. We, we live in a world now where there's so much interest and there's like a fear of missing out, even on the investment side. And so we had tons of companies that were starting up. But now we're seeing the opposite, which is we're seeing acquisitions and mergers and we're seeing kind of some consolidation, which is probably a healthy thing for the industry. Like, for example, Lyft sold off their self-driving uh, self car division to Toyota. Toyota's making some moves, maybe not exactly in building EVs, but some other stuff. We reported, I think, four or five weeks ago that Cruise bought Voyage. Uh, Aurora merged with Uber's autonomous driving unit. And um, there have been a couple of others as well. And this is kind of keeping in, this is kind of in keeping with what's happening recently with other aspects of our world. Like, for example, if you remind time like six months ago, SPACs, you know, special merger, uh, special purpose acquisition companies were a huge deal. Uh, guys like Chamath were, were, were pumping up these different SPACs, and eventually the bubble on that burst. And that happened with CCIV, which became Lucid Motors or is going to become Lucid Motors. That got hyped to such a crazy level. And when that came crashing down, the, like, everyone kind of woke up, came out of their days and realized this is a wildly you know, speculative market. Maybe you should wait until they're more further along <laughs> before you consider investing. It's really just gambling before that. So... There was a reckoning there, and I think it's the same thing here with self-driving tech. The reality is now, five years later, 
we're not there yet. And it is a challenge, something Matt has said for a long time, which is like, we're still years away from this. So mm-hmm. I think the sobering reality is setting in. And some of these investors are thinking, I don't think I want to wait around for this. Like, why don't we sell? Why don't we buy? Why don't we, you know, acquire and and move on? So that is, <laughs> that's kind of where we're at with this. Uh, by the way, Jonathan Brown is in the comment section. I just saw his his email. He had emailed me. He was having trouble with Tesla getting his solar turned on. And I sent him an email, got him in touch with some people, and he's up and running. So congratulations, nice. Jonathan, for for that. Really cool. So, Matt, what do you, what do you take about this and the... Uh, the consolidation of this was inevitable companies. like you could see this coming because there were hundreds of these companies around it was like oh, there's going to be kind of a, a coming apocalypse for these companies there's going to be consol- consolidation and now it's happening and we're at the stage right now where it's going to take deep pockets to keep investing on this because it's we're still years away from this being a real thing and so that's going to take a lot of money and like you said there's investors that are like i'm out it's like we're not in this for the long haul so it makes sense when you have companies like Lyft selling off to Toyota, uh, Cruise buying, was it Voyage, uh, Aurora being uh, merged with Uber. It's like it's Apple buying Drive.ai. It's like it's all these massive companies that have deep pockets scooping up the little guys that just can't, they can't stay in the race because it's, it's an endurance race at this point. It's going to be the next five to 10 years perfecting this stuff and they just don't have the money to do it. So it was inevitable and there's going to be more to come too. And in the article, I thought it was pretty funny because there's a lot of quotes from a, a woman named Missy Cummings, uh, who's the director of hum, uh, was it Humans and Autonomy Lab at Duke University. And she's been long saying, this is much longer than people realize. And the CEOs that are going around and saying, oh, we're doing all this crazy stuff, have been overselling it for a long time. But if you talk to the engineers actually doing it, they're all saying, no, we're still years away. But it's just been oversold in the marketplace. And so... I just love the fact that she's kind of sitting there going, told you so, here we go, here here comes the consolidation. So it's, it's I, I still have, you know, it's going to happen. It's just, it's inevitable that it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when and, and having patience. We're not going to have it this year. I know Tesla, I mean, Elon keeps saying Tesla's going to have full self-driving. It's going to be complete and it's complete in feature, but it's not going to be complete that you can actually use it in the way that we all want to use it. Um, we'll get benefits of the features, but it's not going to be true, you know, true felt, soulful stuff driving where you can have your car drive across the city to come pick you up. It's like that's not going to be happening for anytime soon. Yeah. So. Yeah. The the excitement from investors with software companies is, is obvious and it's apparent because you can yeah. scale up to a million users and make a billion dollars pretty quickly. Like the number of employees at Facebook compared to how many billions in revenue they make, it's shocking like you can you can make a billion dollars in revenue with like a hundred engineers and like 500 employees compared to like 300,000 people at Walmart or or McDonald's but what people don't realize is that yeah self-driving it's just software engineers it's, it's software that stuff scales up and it's not that expensive but these software engineers are paid huge amounts of money yeah. like easily a third of a million like 300,000 400,000 dollars each and you have a team of those guys and the management and all of that plus with self-driving, you're collecting like terabytes of data, like computer vision data. So now we're talking like data centers and managing that. Then you have then you have things like you know the the machines that train the machines, and you have even human testers as well. People don't realize a lot of these machines are not fully self-training. 
So you need some manual oversight. So you have people checking and labeling things and saying, yeah, that, was a, that wasn't that, that was this. So the cost to do this is pretty high, and it gets higher and higher as you're collecting more data. You went from 100 cars in your fleet to 10,000 cars and 100,000 cars. Like that data ratchets up pretty quickly. So though it is software, and when somebody does figure it out, it's going to be incredibly huge, it's a huge road ahead. And I think people are starting to sober up to that reality. Tesla's, you know, still on the forefront of that. And I think they're going to have a subscription plan and they're going to have their beta out to more people. But everybody has to probably just take a deep breath and, and know it's going to take a while. Yeah. Well, next up, next story is a report that just recently came out that's predicting that electric cars will be cheaper in Europe than conventional cars by 2027, which is sooner than I was thinking it was going to happen. But it's it's pretty exciting what they're predicting. And part of the reason I think that they're predicting Europe is because they're further ahead than we are in North America for uh, regulations around uh, gasoline cars to try to push people to EVs. So the EV adoption is happening there faster. Uh, but what this required in the report, they stated that it's still going to require tighter laws for CO2 targets in the uh, European Union. Uh, some strong EV infrastructure support is still needed. And they're saying that it's going to be sedans and SUVs first, that they'll probably reach price parity in 2026, and smaller vehicles will come later, probably in 2027. Uh, and most of this is coming from the massive falling prices of battery production that they're predicting are going to be around, it's going to be about a 58% decrease in cost by, I think it's 2030 that they're predicting. And that's the big reason why this is going to happen. And there's some interesting like charts they included in the report showing the, the crossover for the different sizes of segments, as well as um, if you look at this, this one I thought was interesting, it's with the right policies, the kind of S-curve of adoption that they're predicting. And this is my favorite thing about S-curves. It's like it always feels slow at first, and then we're going to hit this period where it's just going to be like suddenly smartphones were just everywhere because everybody was buying smartphones back when the iPhone became a thing and then Android phones became a thing. It's like you can kind of see where we are now on this graph. Look just 2024 to 2027, and man, it's just going to take off, which you can expect. But then, of course, by, you know, 2035, every car that's being sold will be an EV. So what's your take on this? Yeah, that could you go up a little bit to that previous chart? Um, that chart seems very optimistic to me, and they didn't really provide too much context into how they came up with this, but they're actually showing that like petrol cars, gas cars are going to go up in price a little bit, meaning they'll be harder to manufacture, which I, I think that might be the case, especially as vendors and other subcontractors stop making parts for them. Some of those costs will go up. But that line seems very convenient for the EV cost reduction. My one concern or caveat I, I throw out there is the battery supply chain is very tricky. And yeah. the, the amount of lithium and some of these rare earth materials that you need to form these packs is such a massive volume. And again, they're rare earth materials. They're, they're not just abundantly found like aluminum, for example. So for that reason, you're going to have serious competition between all these car, car companies who are making millions of cars. And so now if I'm going to take my million gas cars and instead make a million EVs, that tax is going to be tricky. So I think that line is not going to be quite so predictable and it's not going to be quite so, uh, not linear, but like kind of like, you know, looks like like a quadratic. So that's my only concern. There, there might be more to the story. And 
you know, COVID and what we've seen with like the chip shortages and stuff, which is not even really related, has us already thinking about scarcity and, and all these different supply chain bottlenecks that we're starting to see. So my hope is we don't see that. And I, I'm hoping we find new sources of these materials or new battery types where we mm-hmm. need less of things like nickel and, and no cobalt. So we are heading in the right direction. And we're we're an ingenious species. I think we will figure it out. So maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm over overstating it, but very exciting. And what's what what? Why do you think they said Europe? I, I was going to ask you that. They made it clear that this is in Europe. So is there something different that ha- is happening in North America that maybe it's going to be different? Yeah, they talked a lot about policies. That a lot of what's going to drive this adoption is going to be policies. And here in the U.S., we don't have any. We don't have strong EV policies right now. Or in Europe, they do. Different aspects of Europe have some pretty strong policies already. And they were saying that to really kind of make sure that this prediction comes true, there needs to be stronger um, transitions from gasoline to EV and policies put in place, building out EV infrastructure more than they already are. So that was kind of the thing they kept driving home in the article, which was just policies. Government policies are going to really help accelerate this, in addition to the dropping battery costs. And I do think what the point you brought up is really good. It's a it's kind of a rallying cry for vertical integration, which is what Tesla's been doing. Like they're <laughs> they're trying to own as much of that stack as they can, even going down to trying to source their own supplies, their own nickel, you know, that kind of stuff, their own lithium. It's like I think we're going to see that happening more and more. I wouldn't be surprised if we see GM and VW and those kind of companies start to do similar things to make sure that their supply chain is owned as much by them to be the master of their own destiny. Otherwise, there's going to be shortages around and you're going to have companies like Toyota, which we'll be talking about a little bit later, but companies like that that are kind of behind the eight ball that may not have the supply chain in place to support what they need to do to be able to achieve something like this. Yeah. You know, I was reading a little bit about the, 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 the gasoline shortages and stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if that continues, if those kinds of trends happen and this, yeah, it could be a little bit tricky, but I'm glad I have an electric vehicle right now. I'll say that much with, yeah. with what's going on. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I agree. Hopefully, this this is a, a good look at what the future holds, and it's a similar story for North America as well. Yep. Are we ready for the, next, for the next story? Yep. Okay, so the next story is about something we've talked about in the past, offshore wind, which is going to be a big part of the future of energy production and how in the U.S. we're starting to greenlight our very first large-scale commercial uh, offshore wind project. So this project here is going to be um, installing up to 84 turbines off the coast of Massachusetts. So Matt is is on the right coast yeah. of, of history here with this one. <laughs> It'll produce about 800 megawatts of electricity, which is enough for 400,000 homes. And to put that into perspective, we currently have two small East Coast generating uh uh, stations that combine for about 42 megawatts of electricity. So we're talking like a, a factor of 20 times the production that we currently have. Yep. Now, this is a drop in the bucket compared to the 30,000 megawatts that, they're, that they have off the coast of, of Europe. So it's still uh, kind of, or t- sorry, 25,000 megawatts. So it's still a drop in the bucket compared to that, but it is a step in the right direction. And we've talked about, we've talked about it before, but like offshore wind is really pretty predictable. The the delta temperatures between land and, and the oceans and just convection currents r- result in pretty predictable output. So this is a major step in a future where we have more renewable energy. And the U.S. has kind of been behind in this regard, so I'm, I'm happy to see that they're 
that they're uh, proceeding uh, this way. What, what do you think about this? What's funny is, like, I live in the area, so I've been hearing about this project since 2009. It's like this has been a long time coming. And it's part of the reason I, I added the story to the, the our story ideas, because it was like, hallelujah, it's finally happening. They're not going to just keep talking about it for the next decade. They're actually going to finally build this thing. Um, it's It's been a not-in-my-backyard NIMBY kind of movement here that's been kind of causing it to happen in fits and starts over the past decade. And it was just that last push that we needed federal approval to build it. So it's like, for me, I'm super excited this is happening. And hopefully this opens the floodgates for more of it to happen in different coastlines uh, around the country, because this could provide an insane amount of power for the United States. Um, a couple of things I thought would be interesting to bring up were, um, as I was reading up on more articles around this, uh, there's kind of a chicken and the egg problem with building massive facilities like this because it requires specialized ships to build them, to like get the parts out there and build them up. And we don't have those ships. But the shipyards weren't willing to build the boats because nobody was building offshore wind turbines like this. So it's like this chicken and the egg thing. It's like, well, we need the ships to build the things, but we won't build the ships until you build the things. And so it was this kind of like, who's going to go first? So this project could be that kind of like door busting open to help shipyards build more of these boats, which will increase the infrastructure we need to be able to even build them in the first place. So there's there's a whole bunch of like ripple effects that this could potentially have up and down the coastline, which is for me pretty exciting. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't really get in, into politics very much. So love him or hate him. Joe Biden has his first hundred days in office. Yeah, have so been some of the most like impactful in terms of policy, I think maybe in history. So he's he's got things in motion, which is which is really exciting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So next up, Elon oh, Musk. Oh no. Yeah. Elon <laughs> Musk giving us a little bit of whiplash. Um he's suspending <laughs> Bitcoin payments until it's more sustainable. And to me, when I saw this news come out, it was just like, wow, we're just getting kind of whiplash over what they're doing with Bitcoin and then Dogecoin. And he goes on Saturday Night Live and makes that comment about Dogecoin and Dogecoin like tanks, you know, the day after that. And now this has happened. And it's once again, it's kind of impacting the markets. Um, the one thing about this that I thought was interesting was when they put the $1.5 billion into Bitcoin, a lot of people came out saying there's an environmental impact to cryptocurrencies, specifically Bitcoin uses an insane amount of electricity. And why would a company that touts itself as being all about green energy go into this currency uh, platform that is really not green? And so this is kind of Elon Musk kind of backtracking a little bit. And it's not a great look because uh, it makes it look like they didn't do their due diligence before they jumped in. <laughs> But at the same time, there was a more recent report that came out that uh, he's quoted a, a lot about the uh, energy generation that's required. And I thought this was an interesting chart. Um, it kind of shows since 2016, the energy use of Bitcoin. And so you can kind of see that the orange line right here through the middle is kind of the, the average predicted uh, energy use. And you can see just over the past year, it has increased dramatically. And the thin gray line that you see gets kind of spiking up here. That's the upper bound of consumption just it's insane how much just over the past year it has just spiked and it's part of the reason why elon is kind of backtracking because bitcoin's energy use is just kind of out of control right now and it's maybe not the best currency for this there are other currencies that use less energy for their transactions 
And that's where the energy use really comes in is the transactions, which is why they've shut down the accepting it for purchase. Because as long as they're just kind of sitting on it, it doesn't really have an impact. But as if they start doing transactions, it's going to have an impact. What is your take on this? Yeah, I'm really glad you broke that down between like deep storage versus transactionary. Um, the future for Bitcoin was to my mind, never about a, a, a great transactionary coin. It was really about deep storage and deep value. So when they announced that they were going to take Bitcoin payment, um, that seemed kind of cool because as the price of Bitcoin has gone up, you could say, oh, I can sell one Bitcoin and buy a Tesla. So that was an interesting kind of um, correlation. But the problem with doing this is like you're, Elon is kind of this person. And I think he's, this is starting, starting to get to his head. He's a person who could like... <laughs> launch a thousand ships with, with with his tweets you know he's he's starting to have such power over some of these markets and it's kind of kind of scary because i'm 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 a firm believer in bitcoin as a, a storage medium for for wealth because and not so much about transactionary i, I think it just takes too long like 10 minutes those kinds of problems are going to persist but as the the hashes get harder to solve as there's more people out there mining the the you know the the competition to to solve the problems increases, you're going to have larger runaway uh, power consumption. And to be honest, this is probably something that Satoshi or the, the original white paper and the people who were early Bitcoin enthusiasts never considered. But here we are now living in a world where it's terawatt hours of electricity used to keep this afloat. But I will say this. Oh, that's, that's, that's such a cool graph. Um, I will say this, though. How much electricity is required to keep the American dollar afloat. So every payment and every visa and every database and every data center and every bank location and every, all the lights and the, uh, it's not a trivial amount. Uh, to be honest, I think one of us should make this video. I've threatened yeah. to do it in the past. <laughs> but it's a, you know, like to keep the US dollar operable is not free either, but no. it's almost impossible to calculate. Whereas the beauty of Bitcoin, or the beauty or the not beauty, depending on how you look at it, is how easy it is to make these kinds of correlations because you can quickly back solve, you know, like the hashing power of various like ASIC uh, miners or GPUs and figure out like the, the, the difficulty levels and the number of, you can kind of back solve how, how much power is being used. So I'm not sure if the US dollar takes more. That, that is a wild amount of electricity for Bitcoin, but I still believe in the fundamentals of Bitcoin. I think we were, my main worry right now, and this is not exactly related, but my main worry in the next six months or a year is we're, we're printing so much money and everybody has this kind of like desire to go put that somewhere that's not gonna lose value. Yeah. So people are buying stock that maybe they wouldn't typically driving their own little micro bubbles. People are getting into crypto, Dogecoin, which is kind of funny. Um, but I think it shows that there's a general kind of concern with just how we're behaving in this. And I'm not sure there's a better way. I, I think we'd have to print our way out of the situation that we've been in with the pandemic. But uh, I'm just a little nervous, a little worried. And so Bitcoin to me is still a bet I'm making personally. And I just wish Elon would just leave it alone. Stop talking about it for a while. <laughs> like, don't take it. Don't don't not take it. Just leave it alone, <laughs> and it'll it'll kind of level. But as as people as he keeps bringing this up, it's um, yeah. This is a pretty rough week, and um, yeah, he he's a, he's in part to blame with with his uh, shenanigans, I guess. 
Yeah, he he does have he does wield a lot of power now. And to me, the funniest moment was just the Saturday Night Live sketch sketch with that he made the joke about Dogecoin, and then like it tanked. It was just like this. It's like oh my gosh! It's like it's a Saturday Night Live sketch. What is going on? He just he he carries so much sway that I don't know if he recognizes yet the power that he's wielding, and he needs to pump the brakes just a little bit and, and use it a little more wisely. I think he knows now. He also is fully aware of the power he wields, and I think it's starting to... He's getting a little drunk with power. <laughs> <laughs> and he does. He I'm, he might be the world's most influential man. I don't, I'm not even going to say it. I'm not going to qualify it. Elon Musk is the world's most influential person, and I don't even think it's close anymore. There's no celebrity. There's no athlete. There's no singer. There's no religious figure, not the Dalai Lama or the Pope. Nobody wields the kind of power he does. And uh, good or bad, it's, um, it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, is, this is Matt's favorite story because uh, <laughs> this one is about the police investigating a Tesla driver spotted in the backseat <laughs> and getting arrested for doing this. Oh, and a day, or two <laughs> a day or two after being released... He is spotted in a, in a red Tesla that he bought doing the same exact thing. And he says, you know, like, I'm happy to be arrested. He's this very rich San Franciscan whose parents live in some high rise. And he, he thinks that this is a tech that he needs to be showcasing, which is all fine and dandy. He trusts it. Um, but it just comes down to it's not legal. You're not allowed with a autonomous driving technology currently to not be at the wheel to intervene in the event that something goes wrong. And he is really pushing his luck. This is a, um, his name's Param Sharma, and he goes by Lavish P. I think that's all you need to know about this gentleman. I think that that, that does it for me. That gives me all the, all the insight that I need. And he doesn't appear to be stopping anytime soon. So this actually kind of makes me think, what could Tesla do in terms of revoking autopilot so for him? I'm so Lifetime ban. Yeah. What do you think? What, what do you do with something like this? Because it is wildly dangerous. I mean, imagine how would you feel if he comes crashing into your, like, causes loss of life or something? I mean, he's, he's going to be looking at, like, first degree murder or something. I don't know. Take his license away. Beach, uh, Beach Crow says, yeah, this is, this is not okay. You can't, you can't be flagrantly uh, flaunting the law and the rules and and keep thinking you'll get away with it because you have a lot of money and you can hire lawyers at some point. I think um, he needs to come up and... Yeah, I, I like that you brought that up because I wrote two notes about this story. The first one was, just don't. <laughs> just, just don't do this. Please, for the love of God, everybody stop doing this. People who do this. Uh, but the second note I wrote was, I wonder if Tesla could put a stop to this. And they really should because it's not a good look for them. I know they've done things where they will turn off uh, supercharging access for people who have like messed with their cars. It's like they should shut off people's full self-driving access if they're caught doing stuff like this that are so egregious and they're just and they're not using it the way it's designed to be used. And it's also illegal. It's like no matter how you slice this, what he's doing is dangerous and it's wrong. And Tesla probably should step in and turn off that feature and also like blacklist his account. So if he buys a new car, he can't add it to a new car. <laughs> it's like they probably should do something to distance themselves from him as much as possible because this is this is not going to be good for the company either. So it's there, there's something that they should be doing about this. They have the control. 
they they could do something. When I made that video about like the reality about FSD and how there's a lot more regulatory involvement than people realize, this is kind of what I mean. Um, <laughs> yep. Who? I mean, don't you think that governments are going to come out and say, if you have any kind of a system, it has to have A, B, and C? And so, like, it is very possible. Like, for example, I think the most uh, the most hardcore is General Motors with their Super Cruise. There's a camera um, right above the steering wheel looking at you. And the minute your eyes come off the road, like I was driving the Bolt in L.A., they, they had invited me up. And it took me a while to figure out what, like, I was so mad. I was like, this Super Cruise thing is a piece of junk. It keeps disengaging. It's because I'm looking around the cabin trying to film something or show something or say something. And the minute your eyes are off that road, the car is like, take over now. And it just starts, you know... Tesla's is very uh, passive. You have your hand on the wheel. So I don't know how this kid was getting away with the requirement that your hand has to be on the wheel. Um, There's ways you know, to trick it. Okay, okay. I figured. <laughs> I, I won't so, describe how to do it, but there, there, are ways sure. that you, there are ways that you can trick it. So it's like he's got to be doing those tricks. So this kind of gets to the thing. This We need rules in place, and we're not even close to that. We, I think we need to be like engineering complete first to then understand what, what approaches we need. And Tesla has a camera like up on top that they're gonna Im- implement, implement, but the angle of that doesn't appear to be that great. Like the way it's looking at you, I'm sure it's a very wide angle. It's not as good as where GM has their camera. Mm-hmm. So what's to say that the lawmakers come out and say, you must have a camera at eye level, monitoring the driver, X, Y, Z, and, and then your Model 3, unless you have a retrofit, wouldn't qualify for full self-driving. That was always my point is there's no way you can say that this car has everything you need for full self-driving or level five autonomy, I should say, Mm -hmm. because that rule hasn't even been defined yet. So these kinds of idiots, let's say, (laughs) (laughs) who are really pushing the boundaries in a bad way are how we're going to figure out what we do and don't need. Um, Hopefully he doesn't hurt anybody and he stops his stuff, but it's people like him that mean we can't have nice things. It's essentially, that's what it is. That is exactly, that's exactly right. Um, And this (laughs) one does irritate me because he's kind of pushing um, uh, fake driver cameras with photos. Yeah. We just don't know what it will be. But Tesla has a lot in their plate. Uh, They have the driver seatbelt, the driver's seatbelt engaged. That is some sort of a, a, a system they can monitor. They... They might have weight sensors in the seat. That should be another one. You should have to have some. You have to have your butt on the seat. You can trick that too, right? Get a bucket of bricks or something. There are things you can do, but that camera with machine learning that's looking at your eyeballs and figuring out what you're doing—that's yep. going to be pretty much impossible to trick, I think. Exactly. Um, and as and as soon as they do, they'll have to make it like the iPhone, where it, it it's doing like a depth field and making sure it's not like a like a picture or something, you know? Yeah. But. This is interesting. Tesla could probably figure this out, and they, and they need to. They need to be able to remotely remove autopilot access. It has to be something that they do, like, in the next software update because of stuff like this. The minute these kind of stories, Tesla stock has, has been on a very bad streak as well. They had that crash and this, these kinds of jokers doing this kind of stuff. So hopefully they have something in place, and um, this is not an issue going forward. Uh, Subaru teases a new Solterra all-electric SUV coming to the U.S. next year, which is pretty cool. Uh, when you put this story onto the uh, th- onto the list, it, the first thing that came to mind that jumped into my head was 
This is basically just Subaru's version of the Toyota, what was it, the BZ4X that we talked about just a few weeks Beyond ago. Beyond Zero, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's basically <laughs> just the Subaru-branded version of that EV because it's they're the same company, essentially. Um, but the thing that I thought was pretty cool is it's going to be available next year. Um, but to me, this is... I'm still in the same camp as I was when we talked about that car. It's like, it's a it's a good-looking car. I'm, I'm The teaser images look great. I'm looking forward to it because I really do like Subaru as a brand. I have a lot of friends that swear by Subaru. They will only buy Subaru. So it's like to have this in the market is going to be really cool. But I just wonder if it's... If, Super, if Subaru as a brand is going to be going into the same kind of hopeless place that Toyota seems to be going with their EV strategy too, because it's basically the same same car. Uh, what was your what was your take on this story? I think you're totally right about the fact that this is going to be the platform that they share with the Toyota version. Uh, look at the pictures. I think your intuition is, is spot on. They look identical. I mean, the sheet metal might be a little bit different, but underneath the, uh, the underpinnings are all the same. Um, we talked about this a lot. The, the Japanese companies are very conservative, and this would be the second or third such uh, collaboration. The the Toyota FRS and the BRZ, which is a little sports car, has the same kind of uh, shared joint platform approach. And in that case, it wasn't that it was an EV. Toyota really does not believe in coupes anymore, but they want to have some in their stable because they, they used to make fun cars, the MR2 and the Celica and the Supra. So I think what they're realizing is we're not going to spend a billion dollars on the development of a coupe that no one's going to buy because coupe sales are down in a big way as people buy bigger cars. So why not share the cost and build a car that we could build two of? And So for that reason, I'm not like I'm not penalizing them too much. I think it does make some business sense. I don't think they're in a position to build a ton of EVs. We talked about this before. Japan has this hydrogen kick uh, just mm-hmm. the entire country does there's there's a lot of investment there even in, in like residential and commercial industrial uh, not just automotive so they are clearly not at the forefront of this but i i'm hoping that the sales for this car will be good there are people who love their toyotas and i'm a firm believer that um the germans and the volkswagens there's probably some people who love the german cars the German Germans make great cars. The Japanese make better cars. I think Toyota and Honda, those kinds of companies, are when it came to gasoline cars, at the top of the line in terms of like the highest quality product. So there are probably buyers waiting for something with a Toyota badge on it before they'll buy an electric vehicle. Yeah. Just like there was for like Ford. When there's a Ford, I'll buy it. Monkey sales have been good. When there's a Volkswagen, ID4 is going to do well, I think. So Toyota, I think stands above either of those companies as far as like a like a standard bearer. So I'm hoping that the sales of this car, even try as they might, as much as they're trying to stink this up, I'm hoping the sales will give them the feedback loop that they need to say, okay, why don't we get serious about this and, and do a better job? Yeah, if they sell them as fast as they can make them, I think that's going to send a pretty clear message to them that they need to kind of wake up and rethink their strategy. Because I'm, I'm losing hope. I'm losing hope in Toyota and Honda. I'm, it's it's really sad because they are, like you said, they're like some of the best car makers in the world. It's like, I, I want to see them succeed. And like I said, I have friends that are swear by Subaru. It's like, I want to have more options for people that are brand loyal like that. So I hope it succeeds. I hope it's a good car. Just a little, a little, a little disappointed. That's it. 
yeah, the only hope now is if they, if they get their act together from having record success, even though they've tried not to have it. <laughs> <laughs> Try as they might. For all the new viewers who, who've tuned in from our ludicrous future, it's kind of sad that they're, they're stopping, but you know, it, it's tough. It takes a lot of coordination. Hope you'll enjoy being a part of this show. Please subscribe and join us, and please get involved and write to us and let us know what you want to see. We, we're here to make it happen. And we're live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And if you go to viceversa.show, you can get the audio version of the podcast. And just like Ricky said, thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you in the next one.